This is a Rooster Teeth production. August 19, 1980. Saudi of Flight 163, a Lockheed L-1011 TriStar with 301 people on board, has taken off from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, bound for Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. The plane is packed with religious pilgrims bound for Mecca to observe the Ramadan holiday. Seven minutes into the flight, the crew receives warnings of smoke originating from the cargo compartment. After four minutes, the captain makes the call to return to the airport in Riyadh. On approach returning to the airport, the plane loses its tail-mounted number two engine. The plane successfully touches down and lands 20 minutes after the smoke was first detected. The plane uses the entire 13,000 feet of runway to slow down, exits the taxiway, and stops facing the direction opposite from where it landed. The flight crew reports they are shutting down the engines to evacuate as first responders rush to the plane to provide assistance. The engines are never shut down and the crew is not heard from again. What? Ground personnel can see no external fire and open the door from the outside. What do they find? What is the fate of Saudia 163? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello. Hi, Chris. Did I mess I, up I, the I, intro I, by going, no. what? <laughs> I, 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 think that was, I think that was good. It was an appropriate reaction. That's what we were going for <laughs> in this episode. I did leave out some, some key little bits of information that we're going to dig into here in the full episode. But yeah, mm -hmm. the plane, they detect smoke. They think there might be a fire. The plane lands fine. Well, I guess they lose their number two engine. Remember, it's an L-1011 TriStar, so it has three engines. Their tail-mounted engine goes out, but they still land fine with the other two engines. Taxi down the runway, turn around on the taxiway, facing the other direction, and no one's heard from again. That's it. That's I was so cut off guard by that because, like, well, they landed. Yeah, everything should be fine. They say they're setting down the engines, and then silence. The engines never actually uh, get turned off. But we're going to dig into the meat of that. And the okay. why. That's, that's the whole episode. I know. I don't want to spoil it right now. I don't want to <laughs> tell you what happened because then, then the next 45 minutes or so is going to be wasted. Yeah. <laughs> But before we get to that, uh, I do want to remind everyone to give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod and uh, go check out our YouTube channel because we have some animated episodes, like little bits, little highlights from our past podcast episodes, things that maybe were difficult to explain in audio format. You can watch in like a quick animated format, see what's going on. Yeah. And it's not just like, oh, here's supplemental material. This is like its own thing that's like digestible. It's really cool. It's very well animated and it's like just adds a whole nother layer. A layer yeah. of sight. Yeah, it's it's missing in our audio podcast. We're really excited about it. So if you could go, it's just youtube.com slash blackboxdown. We'll also have a link in our link tree. But yeah, go subscribe and hit the little bell thing so you know when they come out. And yeah, tell people about it. Post it. Yeah. Share it. Spread the love. I should make my personal social media avatar my little animated figure from that That's show. a good idea. I'm going to do that. Okay. Anyway, that's uh, that's neither here nor there. Oh, and of course, don't forget to check out store.roosterteeth.com. We have oh, uh, yeah. some black box down merch. It's the holiday season. If you know someone who likes the podcast or looking for something for yourself, go check it out. We got holiday sales going on. I don't know what sale will be specifically when this episode comes out, but go check it out. Store.roosterteeth.com. Just do a search for black box down. You'll find all the stuff. You could even give like a black box down mug or shirt to someone who doesn't like the podcast yet. And be yeah. like, here's this thing. And you're like, what is this? And you're like... It's your new favorite podcast or animated YouTube show. Yeah, go search for it wherever you listen to podcasts because yeah. it's everywhere. <laughs> okay, okay. Enough, enough of us uh, shamelessly plugging our own stuff. Back to the, the flight at hand. We're talking about Saudi Flight 163. So, like I said, this is a regularly scheduled flight from Karachi, Pakistan to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia with a stopover in Riyadh back on August 19th, 1980. 
There were a total of 287 passengers and 14 crew members on the flight. And the flight was crewed by Captain Muhammad Ali Koiter. I may mispronounce some of these names. Who was 38 years old, had 7,674 flight hours. Mm-hmm. First officer was Sami Abdullah M. Hassanine. 26 years old, had 1,615 flight hours. And the flight engineer was Bradley Curtis. He was, he was an American. I got that name, I know. <laughs> he was 42 years old. He was hired by the airline six years before, back in 1974. And he had 650 flighting hours. Like I said before, the aircraft was a Lockheed L-1011 TriStar. Its first flight was on July 13th, 1979, and was delivered to Saudi on August 21st, 1979. So the plane was only about a year old. It was just like a year and... Yeah. Not even like it was like 363 days it had been with the uh, with the airline. Maybe 364. 1980 was a leap year. 364 days, <laughs> um, almost a year. So flight 163 departed from Kuwait E Azam International Airport, which has been subsequently renamed. It's now called Jinnah International Airport. So it, it departed from Karachi, Pakistan, at 6:32 p.m. Pakistan time, which is 1:32 p.m. Universal time. It was bound for Jeddah. Of course, in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, with a scheduled intermediate stop in Riyadh back in August of 1980. The flight arrived in Riyadh at 7.06 p.m. Saudi time, which is 4.06 p.m. Universal time. There was a two-hour layover for refueling, and during the layover, several of the passengers disembarked. You know, that's probably where they were going. Uh After refueling, the flight took off at 9.08 p.m. Saudi time, which is 6.08 p.m. Universal time bound for Jeddah. The rest of this episode, we're going to be talking universal time. I was just giving local time because they were changing time zones there. Okay. So they basically, all you need to remember is they took off at 9.08 p.m. Saudi time, which is 6.08 p.m. universal time. So about seven minutes into the flight, the crew got warnings of smoke from the cargo compartment. Cargo, which right. is underneath the passengers, right? Correct. That's where they'll put the bags and any freight that they're hauling. It's under the cabin, under the floor of where the people are sitting. It's weird to think about, right? Anytime you're on a passenger flight, there's all the bags and everything under you. Yeah. So the crew spent the next four minutes trying to confirm the warnings. You're right. They want to make sure that it's not a malfunction in the warning system. Mm-hmm. They want to make sure that you know they're, they're legitimate. After which, flight engineer Curtis went back into the cabin to confirm the presence of smoke. You know, he wants to make sure, like, is this really a real warning? So he goes, you know, he leaves the cockpit, goes into the cabin to see if there's mm-hmm. actual smoke there. Yeah. Captain Coiter decided to return... I'm, it's K-H-O-W-Y-T-E-R. Kauter? Koiter? Kauter. So uh, I'm doing my best here. <laughs> yeah. The captain decides to return to the airport just out of an abundance of caution. First officer Hassanine radioed their intentions at 6.20 p.m. universal time. So now we're dealing just about 12 minutes after they took off. Was there anything else besides the smoke? Were there any other warnings? Or are they just like, there's smoke. We don't know what it is. Let's go back. So they get their warnings for smoke in their instruments. And then mm-hmm. the, when the flight engineer goes out, he also confirms that there is yeah. smoke. But there's no, like, nothing in the engine or anything is acting up. Like, there's no, no. Like, it's just smoke. Right, just smoke, which is bad. Yeah, oh yeah. That might be the worst thing you can have happen in flight. Well, I mean, there's a lot of terrible things that can happen in flight. A fire in flight is, like, is something that would really worry me. As we've talked about before, you know, we've covered other incidents with fire. Sometimes it can be difficult to find. Maybe mm. you can't, you know, use a fire extinguisher right away. You might, you know, the flight crew, if it's in the wall somewhere, they might have to break out an axe and try to find where the fire is. You know, we've had other episodes where we've talked about how a fire can burn through the electronics. It can burn through, you know, hydraulic systems. It's just 
it can spread really quickly and there's nothing you can do. Sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. You just have to get back on the ground, which can be difficult if you're at altitude and yeah. you're going fast. It's, it's, it's a really bad situation. What about a moose? A moose on the plane? Yeah. I would think they would find it before they got to cruising altitude. It's yeah. hard to hide a moose on planes. Well, that's what I, I'm just, you know, hypothetical. People talk about snakes on a plane. If there were moose, mooses, if there were multiple moose on a plane, I think that would be pretty chaotic. I guess it wouldn't would, be melting things. So anyway, sorry. That would be bad, but people would notice that. A moose can't hide in the cabin wall like a fire can. <laughs> and a snake could also hide there too, honestly. That's a true. moose, it doesn't really have any hiding places. Yeah. Any animals that aren't expected, bad in general, <laughs> but not as bad as fire. Uh, are there any? Yeah, uh, not as bad as fire. Okay, anyway, 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 we're getting distracted. Okay, so at 625 universal time, the thrust lever for the number two engine, which remember, again, is the one in the tail, this is a, a trijet, that thrust lever became jammed because the fire burned through the operating cable, just like we, we just finished talking mm. about. Then at 629 p.m. universal time, the engine was shut down during final approach. At 6.35 universal time, Captain Coiter declared an emergency and landed back at Riyadh. There are four engines on this plane? There are three. There's three. Uh, one under the left wing, one in the tail, and then one under the right wing. Okay. After touchdown at 6.36 p.m. universal time, the airplane continued to a taxiway at the end of the runway where it exited the runway, stopping two minutes and 40 seconds after touchdown at 6.39 p.m. universal time. So this was 31 minutes after takeoff. It's back on the ground exited off the runway on the taxiway. And you said it used the entire runway and landed backwards? Well, it used the entire runway to land, and then it exited the runway and turned on the taxiway. You know those uh, uh -huh. parallel paths next to the runway where the plane yeah. taxi? So it exited off the runway and then turned back facing the other direction on the taxiway. And was that abnormal? No, that's normal. I'm just trying to emphasize the fact that it was continuing proper procedure at this point. Okay, I, I heard that. As in, like, they somehow, like, did a 180 on their landing. I was like, that sounds nuts, but anyway. <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah, no. They went ahead and exited uh, onto a taxiway and turned around, which is, you know, what they should do because the taxiway is not going to continue mm -hmm. past the runway. If they use the entire runway, they've got to do yeah. a 180 and turn around on the taxiway. Okay. So once the aircraft had stopped, you know, and they're on this taxiway at this point, the crew reported they were shutting down the engines and they were going to go ahead and evacuate. Real quick question. The, the reason they use the entire runway... Is it because with one of the engines off, they weren't able to do like the reverse thrust as well? Well, it's difficult to say for certain. They may have used it out of an abundance of caution. Mm. Since they're only using two engines instead of three, they don't have as much thrust as normal. So they wouldn't need as much reverse thrust. But you're right. Without the number two engine, there's no reverse thrust coming from there. So it will take them a little longer. Because they're, Plus, they're also still probably really heavy because they have a lot of fuel. Oh, that's because true. Because they haven't flown the route they were taking. So if I had to guess, it's because they were heavy, they had diminished reverse thrust, and they were just didn't want to jam yeah. on the brakes, creating more heat, potentially creating another fire. So they probably used the entire runway just to be safe. Okay. Again, I'm not. <laughs> I don't. I don't know for certain. That's speculation. If I had to guess, I would. I would say that's probably a pretty safe bet. Sounds safe to me. So on arrival at the aircraft, the rescue personnel found that the two wing-mounted engines were still running, which you know prevented them from opening the doors. And we've talked about this before, you know, when rescue personnel come up to a plane and the engines are still going, they have to, you know, the engines have to be shut down first. The engines were finally shut down at 6.42 p.m. universal time, which was three minutes and 15 seconds after the aircraft came to a stop, at which point communication with the crew was lost. The first responders could see no external fire visible at the time, but they could see there were flames observed through the windows at the rear of the plane. Mm-hmm. 23 minutes after engine shutdown, 
at 7.05 p.m. Universal Time, the R2 door, which is the second door down on the right side, was opened by the ground personnel. Three minutes after that, the aircraft burst into flames and was consumed by the fire. All 301 crew members and passengers died as a result of the fire. Everyone died after landing. After landing, yeah. All the deaths occurred from smoke inhalation and fire. But the do- they opened the door. Uh, the ground personnel Oh, did. the ground. Yeah, the oh. people on the outside did. It wasn't the people on the inside. And they found most of the people who were in the cabin of the plane had moved up to the front of the plane, which would infer that the fire was at the back of the plane because everyone had stood up mm-hmm. and moved up to the front of the plane. That's so tragic that they were on the ground, had landed, they opened the door and then... Yeah, and then within three minutes, the whole plane was consumed in fire, which, you know, which is why we, we talk about all the time. It's important to exit a plane as quickly as possible in the event of an emergency. Don't get your bag. <laughs> Don't get your bag. Leave your bag behind. You can replace that. Even if you can make it out okay, you might be slowing down someone else who can leave. The majority of these passengers were uh, Saudis and Pakistani religious pilgrims on their way to Mecca for a traditional Ramadan holiday. And in addition to the Saudis and Pakistanis, there were 32 religious pilgrims from Iran. And there were a small number of passengers from various countries who were heading to Jeddah for diplomatic missions. So the investigation was carried out by Saudi Arabia's Presidency of Civil Aviation with assistance from the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board and the U.K.'s Air Accident Investigation Branch. Investigators found a large hole burned through the floor on the left side near the pressure bulkhead in the area aft of the bathroom installations. And we talked about the pressure bulkhead in the Japan Airlines 123 episode a long time ago. It's kind of like the inner capsule that the cabin sits in that keeps uh, everything pressurized. And so this uh, pressure bulkhead was in the area aft of the bathroom. So it's at the very back of the plane. Okay. You know how the bathrooms are typically... Yeah, there's other ones at the front sometimes, but typically all the bathrooms are at the very back. So it's, it's in the very back of the plane, back in that area. Yeah. There was also evidence of an intense fire on the left side of the aft passenger section. The floor structure beneath the six-seat section over the check area and a section of the floor in the adjacent passenger aisle over the C3 cargo compartment had been destroyed by the fire. The aircraft was equipped with fire extinguishers, including six CO2 fire extinguishers, one dry chemical extinguisher, and four H2O water extinguishers. Many of the bottles were later found either completely discharged or partially so. So it seems like the people in the cabin were trying to fight the fire with the fire extinguishers that they had available at hand. It's just more sad because it was fruitless. Right. I mean, yeah, this is, they were working with what they had, but, mm-hmm. you know, which would lead you to believe that the fire was just so intense or was fueled in some way that they couldn't extinguish it with what they had available yeah. to them. Investigators interviewed firefighters who said the aircraft engines were shut down about three minutes after the plane parked. After the aircraft came to a stop, some of them noticed a puff of heavy white smoke coming from beneath the aircraft behind the wings. Most firefighters said that in less than a minute after the trucks were positioned, they observed smoke rising from the top of the fuselage just forward of the number two engine intake. Uh, Number two engine, of course, is the one in the tail. So this is all at the back of the plane. Mm -hmm. This smoke was followed almost immediately by flames. So when they first arrived... They couldn't see any visible flames outside the plane, but then shortly thereafter, you know, they could see smoke, and then they started seeing flames at the after the plane. And this is so it's like melted through the metal or through the windows, or there's an explosion or no explosion. They didn't report any explosion. Just they just started seeing. You know, they first they could see flames inside the cabin, and then yeah. the flames just got to a point where they were rising outside the top of the fuselage. Okay. So the investigation reveals that the fire started in the aft C three cargo compartment. The fire was intense enough to burn through the cabin floor, causing passengers seated in that area of the cabin to move forward prior to the landing. 
Saudi officials found two butane stoves in the burned out remains of the airliner and a used fire extinguisher near one of them. Ultimately, in the end, I know this is really unsatisfying. Investigators couldn't determine the source of the fire. Oh. There were theories that these butane stoves that I mentioned, that maybe a passenger started using them. There's, there's like this wild theory. I don't believe it. There's this wild theory that maybe one of the passengers was using a butane stove to try to boil water to make tea. But there's no, what? There's no evidence that that actually happened. That's just one of the, the theories that they came up with. And that's why you know, these stoves are mentioned in the report. That's why they're, they're mentioned there's a fire extinguisher near one of them. Uh, I don't know. I can't, I can't believe that, but who knows? I mean, they offer tea on flights. Right. That, that's right. It doesn't, make, it doesn't make sense to me, but I don't know. The worst part was investigators concluded that this accident was actually survivable. No. I mean, ugh. yeah, it, it sounds like it, right? They got on the ground. It seems like people were, were still alive at that point. In the first door of the aircraft was open about 23 minutes after all engines had been shut down. Investigators conducted a number of tests, including one to determine if the C-3 aft cargo smoke detection system had operated properly. And it was found that the smoke detection worked just like it was supposed to. So they took some debris and soot samples from that cargo compartment and sent it to the Metropolitan Police Forensic Science Laboratory in London. An examination of the samples did not reveal any evidence of products of an incendiary mixture or device. A specialist examined baggage and other items removed from the C3 cargo compartment, and there was no evidence found to suggest damage from the detonation of an explosive device, nothing to suggest burning originating from an incendiary device in any of the baggage. And a specialist said he was unable to conclude the cause of the fire, but found no evidence of positive nature of criminal activity. I, I, in my head, I was like, uh, it's, there's a bomb or some sort of something evil going on because just with religious stuff and I don't know. Yeah, you, ne- you never know. But they could find no nothing that indicated any criminal activity, nothing explosive, nothing that was an incendiary device. So that's why it's difficult to say, what was it? Yeah. And that's, uh, I don't want to keep going back to this, but one of the reasons I don't believe the butane stove caused it personally, again, this is just my speculation, is I feel like the flight engineer would have, he, he, remember, he exited and went into the cabin. I feel like he would have said something, would have been picked up. Yeah. Or they wouldn't have had their first indication of fire from the smoke detectors in the cargo compartment. Mm, yeah. It just, it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't click. I want to be open to the possibility, but it just, it just doesn't jive for me. Yeah. Investigators also performed an analysis of the aircraft's stopping performance, and it was concluded that some wheel braking had been applied during landing, but the braking levels were not at a moderate or maximum level. It was estimated the aircraft could have been stopped 2.4 minutes sooner had maximum braking been employed. However, the deceleration rate would have approached 0.5 G and the pilot might have been reluctant to execute such severe braking. Yeah, that makes sense. Like you said, they were being cautious, trying not to overwork the plane or mess. Yeah. Right. But, you know, in the case of a fire, every second, every minute matters. And, you know, if they had done maximum braking, they would have had an extra almost two and a half minutes. Uh, so who knows? I, I can't say what the right decision there is. The captain made his decision, and that's what we're left with, you know? Yeah. We can only uh, speculate after the fact. Investigators also determined there was little or no pressurization differential between the cabin and the ambient pressure outside of the plane at the time of touchdown, and that the aircraft's doors could have been opened immediately after touchdown. Research also indicated that the flight station oxygen system and passenger oxygen system were not utilized during the flight. Investigators criticized the captain, saying that during the plane's descent in its emergency landing, he appeared to devote his entire attention to flying the aircraft. 
He could have reduced his workload by using the first officer to fly the aircraft in order to allow himself time to properly evaluate the situation. Investigators also said during the same period, the actions of the flight engineer may have confused the captain by underestimating the seriousness of the situation. The flight engineer kept saying, no problem, when in fact a severe problem existed. Uh He may have been saying this to bolster his own confidence that all would end well, but in doing so, he presented to the captain an incorrect view of what was actually occurring. Yeah, he, he maybe the urgency of the whole thing. Right, like maybe he was just trying to calm himself down, but in saying so, you know, lulled the captain into thinking, oh, maybe everything's okay. The flight engineer's actions may have contributed to the captain's apparent lack of effective and appropriate assertive action when such action was imperative. Uh, one of the things I said there a couple sentences ago was that, you know, there was very little, if any, pressurization differential between the inside of the plane and outside, which is one of the reasons that, you know, if there was a big difference, that's one of the reasons you wouldn't be able to open the doors right away. Mm-hmm. You know, well, that's one of the things that the crew has to do to prepare for the plane to evacuate. You know, that I know sometimes people ask, like, why don't they land and just immediately open the doors and jump out? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you know, the engines have to be turned off, otherwise someone might get hurt or blown over. Got to make sure the pressurization's okay. It's just one of the checklists that have to be run through in order to make sure you can actually open the doors, pop the slides, and get out. If you're a fan of Black Box Down, you might try adding the Jordan Harbinger show to your rotation since obviously you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts, right? Well, the Jordan Harbinger show covers a wide range of topics, all with heavy-hitting guests in recent months. Jordan's interviewed a YouTuber who exposes a scammy gurus and a researcher who studied what makes people vulnerable to conspiracy theories. Uh, there's something for everyone here, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Uh, But one constant throughout the whole podcast is Jordan's ability to pull bits of wisdom from his guests. So no matter what, you'll learn something here. We really enjoy the show. We think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in Bravo, I-N as in November, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This time of the year is filled with all kinds of warm, fuzzy memories, gathering with friends and family, making s'mores around a warm fire, dodging campfire. You know, okay, maybe not all of it's great, but with a smokeless fire pit from Solo Stove, you can avoid the smoke and actually enjoy the fire. And with their holiday sale, you can get a great deal. The Solo Stove is absolutely awesome. Uh, I was sad I couldn't use it all summer. Well, I guess I could have, but it's too warm here. Uh, now that it's cooler, you know, it's actually a cold front's blowing through right now as I'm recording this. Uh, I'm happy that I was finally able to set my solar stove up and start using it more regularly now with this colder weather. It's so easy to use and it's great that it's smokeless. You don't end up stinking like smoke. You don't have to take a shower after you're sitting outside. It's awesome. Solo stove fire pits are brilliantly engineered, made with premium grade stainless steel and a 360 degree airflow system that minimizes smoke. Easy to light and portable, so it's also perfect for camping trips. Let the gifting begin. Shop Solo Stove's holiday sale for huge site-wide savings now through the end of the year. Get $10 off with promo code BLACKBOXDOWN plus a lifetime warranty. Free 30-day returns. Get an extra $10 off holiday deals at solostove.com. Promo code BLACKBOXDOWN. There's too much going on this time of year, so cutting out grocery store trips with HelloFresh is a no-brainer. HelloFresh sends fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes right to your door. And have they got some serious seasonal recipes right now already in around 30 minutes or less. We're talking recipes like balsamic and fig beef tenderloin or pecan crusted salmon. Dishes that make holiday meals feel special without the cost of dining out or delivery. Or go for a cozy comfort food choice like chicken sausage and sweet potato soup for a cold winter night. And HelloFresh Market has holiday options like their holiday cheese and charcuterie board. Skinny dip dark chocolate peppermint almonds. I can't say enough about it. I know it's easy to fall into that trap of like, oh, I'll just order something out. It's fast. It's easy. It's actually probably faster to just cook something with HelloFresh. You've already got everything in your fridge. Probably within, I don't know, 30 minutes or less, 
you've already made everything and you're eating and it's hot. Didn't sit in someone's car. You don't, you know, some weirdo you don't know didn't handle it. It's all you. It's super easy to do. I personally find it super fun and relaxing. So go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown14. Use code BlackBoxDown14 for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. That's up to 14 free meals and three free gifts at HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown14. Use code BlackBoxDown14. So all three crew members had actually a history of performance issues. Oh. Captain Coiter's records described him as a slow learner and needing more proper training. First Officer Hassanine received his type rating on the TriStar just 11 days before the accident. And at one point during his training, due to poor performance, Hassanine was removed from flying school. And the flight engineer, Curtis, had been qualified as a captain of the Douglas DC-3 and was then assigned to train in either the Boeing 707 or 737, but he failed to qualify as a captain nor as a first officer because he didn't meet the requirements. And he needed to pay for his own training as an L-10 flight engineer in order just to keep his job. Oh my, wow. So he, yeah, that's bad. That's not normal, right? That's- no, no. That was not not the best crew for the situation uh, in this case. The investigators said the captain should have instructed his cabin crew to prepare for an evacuation immediately upon landing. He should have called for the use of oxygen by his cockpit crew and instructed his cabin crew to use oxygen when needed because, of course, smoke inhalation is a big problem, right? You can be overcome with the smoke and pass out, which Mm -hmm. is what ultimately killed a lot of these people. Investigators found that the cabin crew functioned normally, attacking the fire as well as they could and trying to calm passengers. They also made every attempt to keep the captain advised of the serious nature of the events occurring in the passenger cabin. Investigators said that after landing, the captain should have stopped the aircraft as soon as possible, initiated an emergency evacuation, Instead, he wasted critical time in taxiing the aircraft clear of the runway. Uh So they should have just immediately stopped as fast as they could. Don't bother getting off the runway. Yeah, Yeah. and just do your evacuation right there. Yeah, okay, yeah. That's kind of one of the other reasons that I kept talking about how it exited, used the entire runway, exited, turned the other direction on the taxiway. It's just, you know, that's what you're supposed to do in a normal landing, but in an emergency, you should be getting out as quickly as you can. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, but yeah, makes sense. The captain had numerous strong indications that a critical fire situation existed prior to his landing, but he appeared to reject the seriousness of the situation. The reason or reasons for such a rejection are undetermined. The evidence showed that the maximum braking capacity was available and the aircraft could have been brought to a stop on the runway. Again, like I said, saving about two minutes of time. The aircraft remained pressurized during the landing roll as the cabin pressurization system was on standby. We've talked about this. We talked about this in Helios. And the aircraft was found with both pressurization hatches almost completely closed. The pressurization hatches should have been opened completely on touchdown to depressurize the aircraft. So again, like they should have been saving time doing this as as soon as they landed as opposed to getting off the runway onto the taxiway and then doing that. Mm -hmm. The crew were found still in their seats and all the victims were found in the forward half of the fuselage. Autopsies were conducted on some of the non-Saudi nationals, including the American flight engineer, and all of them perished from smoke inhalation and not burns, which indicated they had died long before the R2 door was opened. So again, like we said, if they had been using supplemental oxygen or if they'd been able to get that door open sooner, get fresh air in, there could have been a very different outcome for this flight. Yeah. Evidence indicated that the actions by the Riyadh crash fire rescue personnel were inadequate and disorganized. Evidence also showed a lack of adequate training for the firefighters and a lack of useful fire protective clothing and firefighting equipment. So just kind of insufficient training and execution on this emergency all the way around. But see, initially I 
it didn't sound that way to me, but yeah. Yeah, it's because initially it's one of those things where at first glance you look at it, you like you think, oh, this is okay. And then when all these little things add up, that results in everyone passing away. Like that's the difference between, like that, that's why this, the report says this was a survivable accident. Ugh. All of these little mistakes on everyone's part lead to everyone perishing in this incident when, you know, maybe not everyone would have survived, but a good number of these people should have been able to make it out okay. Yeah. So in the findings of this incident, it was found that the flight crew was properly certified to conduct the flight and the aircraft was properly maintained in accordance with prescribed procedures. The fire probably started in the C3 cargo compartment. Again, they couldn't find a definitive cause of it. And that's the next finding, actually. The ignition source for the fire was not determined. The initial fuel for the fire was probably baggage and cargo in the C3 cargo compartment. There was no detectable evidence of a pre-fire fault in the aircraft systems. During the descent to Riyadh, the captain did not brief the cabin crew regarding plans to evacuate. Again, now we're getting to the point like these mm. are the little things that add up. You know, these are just like seconds add up to minutes, which are the difference between life and death in an emergency evacuation like this. The captain did not fully utilize his flight deck crew during the emergency. Upon landing, the cabin and ambient differential pressure was negligible. The aircraft had adequate braking capability available to make a maximum stop on the runway. The captain elected to taxi off the runway prior to bringing the aircraft to a stop. Toxic fumes, including carbon monoxide, were being produced by burning materials and were inhaled by aircraft occupants. Again, this is where supplemental oxygen or oxygen masks could have made a huge difference. Of course, I know there is... I, I do have to play a little devil's advocate there. Uh -huh. If the fire was burning in the rear of the plane and those passengers couldn't sit there and use oxygen masks, they would have moved up to the front. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, it maybe it wouldn't have been a panacea that fixed everything, but it would have significantly helped. Uh, and of course, I don't know about the L-1011 specifically, but usually planes will have extra oxygen masks in each row, more than the number of passengers who sit there in case baby. something like this happens. Or also what, the, what they do is sometimes, well, you're right, babies, but also sometimes if there is an emergency that requires oxygen and flight attendants need to move from one part of the plane to another, hmm. they can walk from mask to mask going oh. uh, up the aisle. We didn't get into it in our Helios episode, but it's speculated that that's what that flight attendant did to get from the back of the plane up to the cockpit. Oh, So a little bit of uh, extra knowledge there, I guess. A little bit yeah. of uh, things that maybe you don't think about, but that has been, you know, it's been planned for. You know what? What's that? This might be a supplemental episode discussion, but I don't think I've ever seen people using oxygen masks on any movies really hmm it's had to have happened i'm trying to think maybe pilots who are but like people i'm just thinking about action movies and planes you never see uh oxygen masks anyway that's a tangent uh i think the only one i can think of off the top of my head and it's not even a good example mm -hmm. would be uh the crash and castaway but it's like those aren't passengers. It's like the flight crew, and they hand Tom Hanks the oxygen they, mask. Yeah, you know, and they say like, "Put this on." So it's it's not quite what you're looking for. But yeah, now I'm curious. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm thinking more like you know Air Force One type stuff where right. it's more action movie. They don't show them running around with oxygen masks, which makes sense. I understand, but yeah. Uh, tell that to uh, Christopher Nolan and Tenet. He was like, "I want to use these masks all the time. How can I do this?" <laughs> What no, I, I know backwards time oxygen doesn't work in lungs or yeah, who knows. <laughs> or, or, or maybe I'll just make a character who always has an oxygen mask and name oh, him right. Bane. Yeah. <laughs> Bane, that's right. Anyway, anyway, okay, okay. On a more somber note, back to, the, back to the episode. Autopsy findings indicated that occupants had inhaled a high percentage of carbon monoxide. 
There's no evidence of an attempt to open the doors from the inside of the aircraft by the emergency method. Oh. That kind of leads you to believe maybe everyone had already passed away by that oh. point. Oh. Again, we don't know. We don't know if they had passed away or if they were told not to because the pressurization hadn't been equalized. There's no way to know for certain. And you know what? Since the pilot flight crew were in the front of the plane, they might not have known how bad it was in the back of the plane and why they were right. going so slow. I think, you know, one of the findings here was that the cabin crew did try to keep the flight crew in the cockpit uh, as a prize of the situation as they could, but I don't know specifically what they knew or what they didn't know. Mm. Crash fire rescue personnel were not properly equipped or trained. This resulted in their actions being inadequate and disorganized for the situation at hand. Like we said, it took a long time. You know, they got to the plane quickly, but then didn't really attack the, uh, the emergency. The degree of the seriousness of the accident is directly related to the actions of the captain and crash fire rescue services. Investigative evidence and testing indicated that the C3 Class D compartment of the L-1011 was inadequate for the purpose intended, a Class D cargo or baggage compartment is one in which a fire occurring in it will be completely confined without endangering the safety of the airplane or occupants. There are means to exclude hazardous quantities of smoke, flames, or other noxious gases from any compartment occupied by crew or passengers. Ventilation and drafts are controlled within each compartment so that any fire likely to occur in the compartment will not progress beyond safe limits. This goes back kind of like to our value jet episode, which we did a long time ago, talking about the different types of cargo compartments and the different fire suppression methods for each of them. Mm -hmm. And this finding just says that this class D compartment on the L-1011 was inadequate and it didn't meet these three requirements, which I just outlined. So how did it pass inspection or did the, did the requirements change after it went into production? So it was like, I don't know that for certain. I don't know if it was a deficiency in Lockheed's design of the L-1011 that became addressed as a result of this, or if regulations changed. I would imagine that it's not a regulation change because like we said, this plane was just under a year old. So it still would have mm -hmm. been really new. It may have just been an inadequate design from the get-go. Maybe it was an oversight in the regulatory process. I, I can't say for certain. Okay. So there's a couple of probable causes that they came up with here. The Saudi presidency of civil aviation determined the probable cause was the initiation of fire in the C3 cargo compartment. The source of ignition of the fire was undetermined. Like we said earlier, we kind of know where it started, but unfortunately, they don't know what caused it. Factors contributing to the final fatal results were, one, the failure of the captain to prepare the cabin crew for immediate evacuation upon landing and his failure in not making a maximum stop on the runway with immediate evacuation. Two, failure of the captain to properly utilize his flight crew throughout the emergency. Three, the failure of crash fire rescue headquarters management personnel to ensure that its personnel had adequate equipment and training. So all of that seems really cut and dry, right? Mm -hmm. This happened back in August of 1980. This is such an unusual incident that there was actually an alternate conclusion. What? So in a 2013 paper, engineer and consultant Jim Thompson reviewed the accident and argues that Captain Coiter was unfairly vilified in the official report. Uh, he lays much of the blame at the feet of engineer Curtis. 2013. That's, I mean, that's... So, yes, that's like 33 way later. Years. Yeah, 33 years after the fact. Thompson writes that the official inquiry report incorrectly lays almost all of the blame on Coiter, which is unjust. Coiter's principal mistake was that he failed at first to treat the fire alarms with sufficient urgency. He let Curtis decide whether the fire alarms were genuine. Curtis took a crucial five and a half minutes to make this decision. Thereafter, Coiter took control and tried until the very end to save the aircraft and the lives of those on board, but he was stymied by ineffective wheel brakes due to leakage in hydraulic system B, 
and loss of air turbine motors, which led to the decay of hydraulic pressure. Curtis should have reset the air turbine motors, but he did not do so. This meant Coiter could not make an emergency stop. Furthermore, Curtis had closed both fuselage air ventilation valves, so fumes built up, cabin pressure increased, preventing evacuation, and all on board died from carbon monoxide poisoning. So uh, he gets a lot more tuned in on Curtis's lack of action and the things that he failed to do that ultimately led to this being a worse outcome. Hmm. Thompson also concludes that blame is shared between Coiter and Curtis, but most of the blame must lie with Curtis. Curtis was at best marginally competent and his decision-making was flawed. He seemed to become confused in the crisis and focused on relatively unimportant matters. Curtis's closure of the aft air ventilation valve after landing led directly to the deaths of 301 passengers and crew. <sighs> Thompson adds that Coiter's workload in the last few minutes was intense, yet he successfully landed a stricken aircraft. The errors, actions, and inactions of Curtis prevented a rapid stop and caused toxic fumes to accumulate, which caused the deaths of all on board. Coiter was unfairly vilified by the original official report. So he's saying that the, the, the things that we talked about the captain failed to do were the fault of Curtis and not the captain's fault, that the captain couldn't do as efficient of a job because of mm. uh, what Curtis had done. So what was the motivation for this guy to do a report like, I don't know, 33 years later? I mean, was there, is that his, was someone hire him or was he just like, was it part of his like a school research paper? I don't know. Like why, why would someone dive into this? Because I know detectives sometimes will dig up old cases because there's like, you know, forensics that technology that's changed. But in this instance. So I don't know necessarily who hired him or if anybody hired him or why Jim Thompson decided to write this paper. Uh, it may have just been, he was curious about it himself. You know, like people ask me, why am I interested in plane crashes? Maybe this was one that just really, mm -hmm. you know, interested in him. And this was, you know, his field of study. So he really wanted to dig into it. I can't say. It's about a six page report. So it's, and it's, you know, I'll see if I can find a link for people to download it. If you like this podcast, it may be uh, an interesting read for our, our listeners. The NTSB reports and the other official agency reports we dig through for some of these episodes are hundreds of pages long that really get into all the minutia. If you're interested, you know, in seeing, you know, a, a six-page summary by someone who's uh, who knows about this stuff, it's a, it's 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 an interesting read. Uh, it's a light read compared to the the official <laughs> NTSB reports. But I'll, I'll I'll see if I can find a link for people to download it just so they can read it for themselves and come to their own conclusion. Oh, and then uh, as for what started, he did actually have uh, some speculation about for what started the fire. Oh. He wrote that many of the passengers were poor Pakistanis and Bedouins who had never flown before. Because they were on pilgrimage, many had brought their own cooking utensils, like stoves and gas bottles on board with them. This would have been illegal, so these must have somehow been smuggled aboard or else the pre-flight checks and security were lax. Again, he's talking about the butane stove, which I'm not a big fan of, but there is some information about that in that report that he wrote. So again, like I said, I'll link it if you want to read through it and see what he has to say about that stuff. But I will say as far as these gas bottles and stoves, I'm going to, I'm going to read a, a, a line from his, his, his report here. It says, the exact cause of the fire was not determined, although Pilgrim's carriage of gas bottles must be a strong suspect. So even he says, he can't say definitively, he strongly suspects it, but again, I don't know. It, it just, I, I can't reconcile that in my head. If the... Mm -hmm the C3 smoke alarms were going off. But obviously, he knows way more than I do. Mm -hmm. All right, so there were some recommendations as a result of this incident. The U.S. National Transportation Safety Board made two recommendations to the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration. 
The plane's C3 compartment was approved as a Class D compartment, which meant that a fire within it should be controlled by oxygen depletion. That's accomplished by using a flame-resistant Nomex ceiling liner, but that efficacy was subsequently disproved by FAA tests. So I guess maybe this answers your question a bit. Like it was approved, but then they found it wasn't adequate. Mm. Reevaluate the Class D certification of the L-1011 C3 cargo compartment with a view toward either changing the classification to C, which would require detection and extinguishing equipment, or changing the compartment liner material to ensure containment of a fire of the type likely in the compartment while in flight. And review the certification of all baggage and cargo compartments in the D classification. All this boils down to the materials in the ceiling didn't work to stop the fire as well okay. as it should have. And again, if a passenger was making tea with a butane stove, they wouldn't have been doing it in the cargo compartment. I don't <laughs> want to keep <laughs> beating this over the head. I just It just doesn't make sense to me. Okay, anyway, anyway. Saudi Arabia's Presidency of Civil Aviation also made a series of recommendations to the Saudi airline, including revise training programs and initiate additional programs to ensure that flight crews are given adequate instruction for immediate and aggressive response to any problems relative to the safety of flight. Those should include instructions for immediate actions to be taken upon the activation of any aircraft fire and smoke warning devices and or receipt of any information that fire or smoke has been observed on an aircraft. If smoke is confirmed, the instructions should dictate a landing as soon as possible at a suitable airfield. So just act immediately and aggressively to anything that affects the safety of flight, especially yeah. if it's fire or smoke. Amend Saudi's crew training program to include additional assertive and command training for junior Saudi captains and for first officers. Establish a system so flight crews are matched to ensure that cockpit experience level and competency is at a desirable level. Such a procedure would eliminate the scheduling of junior captains and junior first officers on the same flight. So like we saw here, we had kind of inadequate captain and first officer balance that out in the future. So you have an, at least one experienced person uh, in the cockpit. Yeah. Amend Saudi's personnel policy to stop the rehiring of flight crew members for a flight crew position after they've been removed from another flight crew because of substandard performance. Saudi should provide personnel to oversee the check-in security inspection and boarding on all Saudi flights. In addition, Saudi personnel should spot check for security purposes, check baggage and cargo. Security was just a lot more lax back then. You know, yeah, we live yeah. in a totally different world now. Saudi should take necessary action to improve their surveillance and direction of the cargo handlers in regard to the methods and materials that are placed in aircraft cargo compartments. So the accident was the deadliest involving a Lockheed L-1011 TriStar as well as the deadliest aviation disaster to occur in Saudi Arabia. Ugh. At the time, it was the second deadliest aircraft accident in the history of aviation involving a single airplane after Turkish Airlines Flight 981, which I do not believe we've covered. We may cover that one in the future. After the event, the airline revised its training and emergency procedures. Lockheed also removed the insulation from above the rear cargo area and added glass laminate structural reinforcement. The National Transportation Safety Board recommended the aircraft use halomethane uh, extinguishers instead of traditional handheld fire extinguishers. So just more robust fire extinguishing capabilities. Okay. So that's pretty much it. That's uh, Saudi 163. It sounded like at the beginning, like we're going to have an episode, we're going to have an incident where everything goes right, but all these little things go wrong and add up to an, a, a real disaster. Like there are so many small bad decisions. Like the fire... You know, they couldn't have predicted it. They can only yeah. deal with it. The crew can only deal with it. But all of the decision making that came after that led to nobody being able to get out of the plane. You know, the, they landed. They were still talking. So they, we know that they were alive for a while, but ultimately smoke inhalation overtook everyone. Uh, and, you know, nobody was able to make it out of the plane. It's really an awful incident. I'll 
I'll post uh, some photos. There's some photos of the aftermath of this, of what happened to the plane after it gets consumed by the fire. And when you look at those photos, you're gonna you're gonna be shocked. You're gonna wonder like, how did this plane land? Like this plane came back and landed just fine, and then it's just absolutely gutted and destroyed by the fire. Man. But uh, we'll be back uh, with another episode next week. Uh, don't forget to give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod. I'll post some images of the aftermath of the plane, and I'll try to find a link to download the report that we talked about from Jim Thompson. Also, yeah, go 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 to our YouTube. Send it to someone who's like, I don't like podcasts, because now it's, they, they can check out Black Box Down without someone who doesn't like podcasts. Yeah, and if they have uh, the animated one, you know, maybe that'll uh, they can be like, oh, this does seem like a like something I would like to listen to. Maybe I you, will try listening to podcasts. Right. You can trick them, the old bait switch. <laughs> I said that weird. I meant bait and switch. I don't know how it came out. My mouth was acting weird. All right, anyway, uh, we'll be back again <laughs> next week. Bye.